Daily Drive is brought to you by the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. Innovation. Resilience. Agility. It's how Michigan businesses continue to work together to make a difference now and shape the future. Join us and make your mark where it matters. Visit michiganbusiness.org slash radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Steve Smith with Automotive News, and this is Daily Drive Rewind, a look back at some of our over 350 Daily Drive interviews with leaders from across the industry. Giving ongoing conversation recently in Washington surrounding infrastructure, climate change, clean energy, supply chain resiliency, and even EVs, today we thought it was a good idea to revisit my October 2020 conversation with Deborah Wint Smith, President and CEO of the U.S. Council on Competitiveness. At the time, Wint Smith described the state of manufacturing in America as, quote, the best of times and the worst of times. We discussed the changing of manufacturing's perception from the four Ds, dirty, dumb, dangerous, and disappearing, to the four S's, smart, sustainable, safe, and surging, and how that creates the opportunity for rewarding long-term careers in U.S. manufacturing. Here's my conversation with Deborah Wint-Smith. Deborah, thanks for joining me today on Daily Drive. How are you? I am very well. It's great to be with you, and thank you for um, including me in your discussion about the state of manufacturing and competitiveness in the United States. Thank you for joining me. These are always wonderful conversations, and I always enjoy getting your perspectives on that topic. So why don't we start? What is the state of manufacturing in the United States today and the state of our global manufacturing competitiveness? Well, I think if if, if I wanted to uh, use a expression from uh, 19th century literature, um, Charles Dickens, you know, uh, the tale of two cities, it's the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> because as you know, um, our manufacturing enterprise was hit very, very hard by the uh, global pandemic and navigating through, you know, the early days of the uh, global uh, lockdown, as it were, and also responding to many of the near-term and longer-term challenges that our nation has faced um, with the pandemic in terms of the disruption of supply chains, the uh, really shocking revelation that many of the critical products that we needed to deal with this healthcare crisis. Uh, we were dependent on um, offshore suppliers, many of whom were in Asia, and that we didn't have the uh, immediate resiliency in our production system to deal with that. So that has been a, a really big wake-up call. Um, we, of course, you know, I, I, it's, it's a, it's a time of great transition and, and transformation in manufacturing writ large, but, you know, in the immediate, uh, aftermath and, and navigating through the global COVID pandemic, we've seen, you know, complete turbulence in supply and demand, um, plunging demand, of course, in critical high value manufacturing industries such as aerospace and, and of course, you know, the automotive, um, industry as well. And as I said, many other industries that are uh, at, at, were at the forefront, you know, of, of just-in-time manufacturing and, and not keeping, you know, huge inventory supply um, have had difficulty in, in accessing their core 
materials. So everything from paper product producers, chemical producers that make hand sanitizers and disinfectants and consumer technology workers that, you know, had to navigate all of a sudden from being on a factory floor to hybrid models and things. So this has all been very, very disruptive. And I think, you know, this sudden uh, revelation of the vulnerability of complex supply chains, um, you know, every, and if you think of the pharmaceutical side, you know, a lot of just the critical feedstocks that go into the production of pharmaceuticals as well as medical devices, um, you know, we, we were dependent um, outside of the United States. So this challenge of disruption, dependency, perhaps concentrating in the past too much on cost and efficiency versus security and resiliency, you know, plagued many, many of our manufacturing producers. Um, and then, of course, you know, manufacturers have had to, those that continued to work throughout this time, you know, to provide critical services and products from the food we eat to, you know, really everything that enables our daily existence. They had to deal with how to manage um, the pandemic outbreaks in their plants with their suppliers and, and, you know, their customers and establishing the social distancing for workforces. And so balancing this critical need for employee safety and keeping production up and running. So the impact has been very severe um, in the United States in the second quarter. Manufacturing's real gross output was down by a third and its GDP down by more than 36%. We've also, of course, seen between April and August, about 1.2 million workers were laid off or discharged from their jobs in manufacturing. And as I said, you know, earlier, mo the motor vehicle industry was particularly uh, hit hard with, with gross domestic product dropping 87% in the second quarter. So that's really the, the worst of times. Um, but I, I want to turn, you know, a little bit um, to the future as well. But, but maybe I'll stop there and see if there's anything you want to drill a little deeper in on, on that first uh, set of discussions we're having on the state of manufacturing. I, I should say, of course, that some of our manufacturers and Ford Motor and others were really incredibly uh, innovative and creative and responsive in a very patriotic need to how they, you know, on a dime turned their production systems and, and what they had available to produce, you know, ventilators when we were in the situation early on when there was a you know, health experts projected that we needed a, a huge surge of ventilators. And, you know, the, the president used the Defense Production Act, among other tools, and then reaching out, you know, to, to great manufacturers like Ford and others to do that. As it turned out, of course, we didn't need as many ventilators as we thought as we've learned more about the pandemic. But that underscores, you know, the innovation, the patriotism and the resiliency of many of our uh, manufacturers who responded to that call um, to pivot to produce ventilators. Absolutely. And I think that's a nice segue into your future, to the future of manufacturing, right? I think what you just described demonstrated the manufacturing know-how in the automotive industry. And I think maybe a lot of people who are not automotive insiders 
began to realize that tangibly, um, you know, going back to the arsenal, the democracy and, and how the automotive industry back in World War II played the role that it did. Um, I, I turn to kind of what's the future, and the council has been doing a global manufacturing competitive index for several years. Um, China has always been the top of that, but the United States has closed the gap, and, and really the strengths that that study um, uh, largely and consistently described in terms of America's strengths were about productivity and ingenuity and know-how, among other drivers of competitiveness. So as you marry the, the competitiveness of the United States and what's the future look like, are those still our competitive strengths and, and how are we doing in those areas? Well, you know, the the 2016 Global Manufacturing Competitiveness Index that we issued that really um, predicted this turn where the United States would be the most competitive um, company in advanced manufacturing, not, you know, more commoditized mid-20th century manufacturing, also mm -hmm. had um, at its heart, you know, the imperative around talent. And, you know, talent driven innovation driving that. Um, we actually hope that we will do a update on that in the next year. I think that whether or not we're going to see similar trends or a upheaval in some of the factors leading to manufacturing competitiveness will depend a little bit on whether we're going to, what kind of recovery we're going to have coming out of the pandemic. But I think, you know, one of the things that has been predicted now for some time, and we've seen some early adopters, but now it's just on, you know, fast acceleration. It's the digitization of everything. And, you know, we, we're, we know we're living in the smart manufacturing era in digital design and digital production using you know, modeling and simulation tools for uh, supercomputing to actually do tests. This was very early deployed actually in the auto industry using modeling and simulation supercomputing on for uh, safety test crashes versus, you know, physical tests. But all of that has accelerated. So we're seeing more digitization and deployment of automation with highly skilled workforce enabling that. And as I've alluded to and talked about in terms of, um, you know, the impact of the pandemic, truly supply chain realignment coupled with some strategic reshoring of operations, again, coupled with the um, rapid acceptance of telework and for those whose jobs, you know, allow for that combination of work, both physical and digital. And, you know, the digitization in manufacturing has, has moved forward, but also coupled to how we're using sensors, um, how we are moving forward in artificial intelligence. Um, you know, I, I always like to say that uh, Deere and Company was way ahead of everybody in um, the uh, autonomous vehicle space, having had, you know, self-driving uh, and smart tractors out in the fields and some of these massive farms in Brazil and elsewhere using that. And they're, they're very much, as is the auto industry, uh, merging 
the artificial intelligence capability for predictability, for sensing, and for understanding, you know, massive amounts of data to improve their optimization, um, really becoming in many ways an, an IT company in addition to, you know, making the, the, the physical um, product um, that comes out of the, of, of the manufacturing um, pipeline from design all the way to cradle to grave um, sustainability. So digitization and automation, supply chain realignment, some reshoring, telework. But I would also add that we're seeing a great acceleration of building sustainability into all components of supply chain and operation. And an example of that that I think we're thinking about is how, you know, back in the 1980s and 1990s, we, we had the imperative, two imperatives. One was for total quality management, the creation, you know, of the Baldrige Award and building quality into all operations. And, you know, the Japanese were ahead of us in that space. Um, they actually, you know, took our thought leadership from Deming and others to build their, their Kaizen system and total quality management. But we, we transversed that and Quality management became just a core platform of production. And similarly, the other uh, platform that we now have that, that came from top-down and bottom-up uh, integration into all manufacturing production and operations was environmental safety and health. And, you know, the United States manufacturers took this not only here but around the world and and our companies have really tremendous standards and records on environmental safety and health and, and, and low, you know, accidents, uh, injuring workers and things. And again, to be competitive, really almost to be in business, environmental safety and health had to be part of the DNA of a manufacturing enterprise. And the third cusp of where we are right now is around sustainability, sustainability in you know, the cradle to grave use of materials in a way that is not um, causing uh, harm to the environment, but is also moving us more and more quickly to an industry-led, production-led, low carbon, uh, net carbon, you know, zero world, as opposed to that being, you know, driven by government regulations and mandates. Customers require this and want it. It's important for manufacturers' brands and for, you know, how they relate to their uh, customers, but also their investors, their shareholders, their boards. So I think that, you know, part of the good, as when I started out, you know, uh, referring to Tale of Two Cities, the best of times, the worst of times, one of the best things is this acceleration of building sustainability into all components of a manufacturing enterprise. And I think we're seeing, you know, for instance, on the R&D side, uh, tremendous work moving forward in our national labs and universities and partnerships with companies around self-healing materials, you know, creating, uh, I hope, sooner than later, um, artificial rare earth materials so that we are not dependent one on China and other countries who are using these rare earth materials as a strategic weapon and control issue, but also for the environmental and sustainability reasons, because the actual 
mining and production of rare earth materials is a very um, carbon intensive, uh, not a very clean manufacturing operation. But of course, you know, many of these uh, rare earth materials we are absolutely dependent on in advanced electronics and things. So uh, those are some things that are underway that are moving. We were talking about it in the future, but we're there in many, many industrial sectors. I think also, um, you know, the challenges in the aerospace industry with the whole uh, pandemic and how it's impacted transportation has also fueled um, greater attention to how they're going to navigate to uh, move to away from fossil-based fuels because, you know, the, the global uh, footprint in carbon and has been very seriously reduced overall because of the decline in, in air travel. And of course, that's not good for business and it's not good for them and it's not good for all of us and how we need to do our work. But um, we're going to see a lot of innovation um, in, in solving some of those problems, really innovation driven by problems and needed solutions. We'll have more with Deborah Wynn-Smith after this. Innovation. Resilience. Agility. It's how Michigan businesses work together and continue to build the future. Our expertise, talented workforce, and collaborative environment are making a difference now and shaping the future. Join us and make your mark where it matters. Visit michiganbusiness.org slash radio to put your plans in motion. That's michiganbusiness.org slash radio. Well, I think all of that touches upon, you know, some very transformative trends in automotive, everything from the plant floor to the product, right? You talked about rare earth materials, electrified, autonomous um, batteries, all of that stuff is literally powering the products of the future. Um, but but it also has an impact on on the plant floor and emissions, et cetera. It is, as, as you know, if you allow me to say it is the new frontier of competitiveness for the for the United States. Would you would you agree? Yes. And I would also add to that, if I may, you know, the um, the incredible importance of our national strategic investments in public private partnerships that involve our great manufacturing companies, large corp large global enterprises, all the way to small and medium sized suppliers and startups in how they're merging together advanced um, information technologies. I've mentioned AI, of course, but in advanced computing, but also in other areas that um, require visualization tools with machine tools, robotics, and very importantly, biofabrication. And biofabrication was sort of a futuristic um, uh, concept and reality kind of in the laboratory. But again, it relates to sustainability. It relates to um, taking out waste from production cycles. And we're going to see more and more biofabrication, and the U.S. is in a strong leadership role there. I do want to talk about the semiconductor ecosystem. Absolutely. Um, you know, Please do. We recently heard about, you know, Intel uh, leaving the memory space um, and other challenges inside the U.S. semiconductor uh, extended enterprise. And this is very, very serious because, 
you know, we've still, we still lead in the design of these very, uh, critical core microelectronics that drive all the digitization, but the manufacturing at scale has been something that we have allowed for a variety of reasons to atrophy over many years. And now we're faced with a situation that has both profound economic and national security implications. Our country, working with our allies, and I would include here Australia, Japan, certainly the UK and, and Korea, we have to come together and form some massive co-investments, co-partnerships in next generation microelectronics as we face the end of Moore's law. And we have to leapfrog um, over where we are and embed the manufacturing of these microelectronics with capability in the United States, not, you know, dependent on Asia. And part of that is the other frontier in cybersecurity, cyber protection, is that the cyber protection that's so critical to all of this digital enterprise is increasingly can be embedded in the actual hardware, in the devices, as opposed to software, gates, and guns. Mm -hmm. And so there's a huge cybersecurity imperative as well as economic and national security so that we're not you know, dependent on adversaries, and I would say particularly China, that's targeting this sector in a massive way. So that is something that we really have to um, move forward in. There's, there's the this administration has a plan that they've been pushing forward that we're very supportive of at the Council on Competitiveness, and it builds upon all the excellent work in this area that was um, also uh, put together at the end of the Obama administration. And I think whoever you know, as our president, after this election, we will continue to see strong bipartisan consensus for, um, you know, a major, major national thrust in next generation um, microelectronics. So let me ask you, if you're a manufacturer or, or, you know, certainly cost of labor is important. Do you think that becomes that that has become less important for all of the reasons that you just cited? Cybersecurity, national security, taking a competitive advantage is perhaps focused on low cost labor short sighted? Well, Steve, I think I think we have moved way beyond for many years now focusing on low cost labor. And and that's something that in our earlier iterations of the Manufacturing Competitiveness Index, we called out, you know, that that leading manufacturing nations were not going to be those that had, you know, a focus on low-cost labor. And, of course, China's also facing this with many uh, more emerging nations, such as Vietnam and others, um, Bangladesh, who have a much lower cost of labor than, than China. And we can't maintain our standard of living, our productivity, if we have a race to the bottom, you know, on low-cost manufacturing. And the tools of the digital world, um, the modeling and design and all of these things really take away that advantage when you're working in the advanced manufacturing ecosystem of smart manufacturing, which is why workforce skills and constant training 
and having, you know, digital literate, digital, digital literate workforce is such an imperative for us. And, you know, the National Manufacturers Association and other trade uh, associations, you know, are really, really uh, doing great work around talent driven skills for 21st century smart manufacturing. But, you know, the, the cybersecurity issue that I raised, and I don't know, you know, you, you read just in the last few days, there's a very significant increase in cybersecurity attacks against our U.S. and other um, partner global pharmaceutical companies that are working, you know, on, on potential uh, vaccines for COVID. They're in clinical trials, massive cyber attacks coming from the usual suspects, China and others. But, you know, dealing with the cyber threat is absolutely critical because China is also deploying this aggressive multi-pronged strategy to acquire and absorb these critical technologies through cyber attacks on the core intellectual property by both, you know, illicit cyber attacks and others, but even illicit means through forced technology transfer and things. So, you know, our U.S. trade representative has really articulated so strongly in working on the investment, the regulatory requirements that are requiring pressing for technology transfer, forced joint ventures for market access, cyber theft, industrial estimates. We have to shut all that down, you know, in in our relationship with, with particularly with China. Why don't we end with a question around talent? Um, how is talent-driven innovation going in the United States? How is how goes our efforts to attract uh, young folks to pursue careers in advanced manufacturing? Um, how goes? What's the status of that mission? Well, I, I before I answer that, I do want to make one important comment about how important our oil and shale gas boom, how important that has been in impacting. Um, competitive advantage in our um, production and manufacturing. You know, the, the natural gas that became and is a, a, a big feedstock for the chemical industry and others. I mean, our overall cost of energy in the United States is two-thirds less than, you know, Germany and Japan. And that's a huge competitive advantage in cost structure. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as and also, of course, the reduction in the U.S. corporate tax rate that from 35 to 21 percent and very much hope if you know we have a new administration that some of the talk about taking away that competitive advantage in our corporate tax will will not get implemented because that would be very very bad as we had the highest rate among oecd countries so our our energy advantage our corporate tax advantage these are things that give us you know tremendous um run room as as, as we move forward on on talent-driven innovation, well, you know, we are still the world's epicenter for disruptive innovation. And, you know, we do have this incredible research infrastructure and low barriers to entrepreneurs and startups. And we're still the world's largest investor in R&D, accounting for nearly 30% of global R&D spending, uh, more than $500 billion per year. So we have a unparalleled national stock of science and technology and our great national laboratory system, you know, Oak Ridge National Lab has done tremendous things, continues in additive manufacturing and their uh, advanced carbon composite facilities. So these, and of course, the National Network of Manufacturing Institutes, um, 
that that are uh, you know really growing and expanding across the country. But we have to do much better on uh, developing and training a STEM literate uh, workforce and ensuring that our children, you know, from K through 12 all the way up to the graduate level, you know, are really going to be functioning with the skills and capabilities they need to operate in this transformational digital world. Um, we, the U.S. Council is going to be releasing soon. A, 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 we're very excited a great letter um, from our university presidents about the importance of our research enterprise and maintaining the talent that drives that. But I think, you know, we have not had the focus we need consistently on developing the middle skills that we need for manufacturing competitiveness. And fortunately, some of our great skilled labor unions, um, I will I will call out, you know, the vice chairman of the council, Lonnie Stevenson, who's president of the United Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. And of course, the auto industry has has the auto workers union. But these you know, pipe fitters and plumbers and all of these skilled unions, they're doing incredible things on training the workforce and training our veterans coming back. But we need to accelerate it and we need it to be that, you know, public-private partnership, but very important um, industry-labor partnership that it, that moves into communities as well. And, you know, I, I Steve, I want to close by something that, um, if we're ready to close, that, that that is really very um, powerful concept. And when I when I was a senior official back in the Reagan administration in the White House, uh, a Japanese colleague came in and said, you know, we're very worried about manufacturing because Japanese young people don't want to go into manufacturing because it's dirty, dumb, dangerous, and disappearing. And, you know, that was, what, 30 years ago plus. But today, manufacturing is safe. It's smart, it's sustainable, and it's surging. And so, you know, this perception of manufacturing as being something that kids that don't go to college end up with really has to be changed because it's exciting and it's at the forefront of innovation and transforming our physical material world in which we all live as human beings. So um, I applaud you, Steve, and, and the leadership of Automotive News and the companies you represent for being so much at the forefront of um, of uh, articulating the critical importance of manufacturing to our nation's um, prosperity, the well-being of our citizens, our national security, and our leadership role in the world. From the four Ds to the four Ss, smart, sustainable, yes. safe, and surging. I love it. That is a terrific way to end our conversation. Deborah, thank you for joining me today. Very insightful, very timely, and very uh, interesting points of view. I appreciate you taking a few minutes out of your day. Thanks. Thank you, Steve, very much. That's it for today's Daily Drive Rewind. For breaking news, visit autonews.com. And to catch up on all of our episodes of Daily Drive, go to autonews.com forward slash daily drive. We'll be back tomorrow with another Rewind. As always, thanks for listening and make it a great day.